0: The European theater of World War II ended May 1945. The Germans were soundly defeated. They surrendered. At that point, all attention shifted to the Pacific theater and the new front. New enemy, the Japanese. Not really new, but the final front of the war. But the Japanese were unlike the Germans in many respects. Their culture, their values, their military were all markedly different. And so the Americans, wanting to help their troops transition to the the final front of the war, put together a little film titled, Know Your Enemy, Japan. It was directed by Frank Capra, who just one year later went on to direct It's a Wonderful Life. That film sought to orient the Allies to the Imperial Japanese Army, from their diet to their appearance critical to understanding the fighting spirit of the Japanese was their complete devotion to Emperor uh, Hirohito. The Germans they followed Hitler out of fear, but the Japanese followed Hirohito really almost out of worship. The movie narration states that the Japanese, quote, entrust to one man the powers of the President of the United States, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, the Premier of Soviet Russia, Add to them the powers of the Pope, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, and top it all with the divine authority of our own Son of God, and you will begin to understand what Hirohito means to the Japanese, why they call him the God Emperor, end quote. I mean, the Allies were about to face an enemy who was not going to surrender. They were going to fight to the last man, and even then they would go out by a kamikaze if they had to. Much unlike the Germans, and from Japan's imperial history to the legacy of their samurai to their code of Bushido, it was essential for the allies to get to know their enemy intimately, that they might overcome them. Now, Understanding your enemy's actions, anticipating your enemy's next move, uh, undermining your enemy's priorities and values, that it's all essential to winning a war. Now, I'm sure you can all expect that the same is going to be true spiritually. This war against sin we're talking about, it's unlike any conflict you've known. This enemy is truly unique. If you have any hope of winning this war, it's going to come on the heels of understanding your enemy, knowing your enemy, namely the sin that resides within. And that is our aim this study. We return this evening for another session in this series titled Winning the War Against Sin. What is this Bible study series really all about? It's about understanding and winning the war against sin that takes place in the Christian life. Christianity is founded on this good news that the Savior has come. Christ the Savior, he's come. He's died on the cross. He rose from the dead to pay fully the penalty for our sins. Now by faith in him, we can be justified, which means we're declared by God to be not guilty of our sins and instead righteous. The amazing reality is that by God's grace, if if you're in Christ by faith, he views you as sinless as Christ and as righteous as Christ. But as amazing as that news is, there still seems to be this disconnect because we don't always act that way. We don't always act sinless and perfectly righteous. In fact, just the opposite. We, We still continue to sin and live in some degree of unrighteousness. So what do we make of that? How do we explain that? What do we do about that? Is the message of Christianity entirely past and future? Meaning we're justified in the past. We will be glorified in the future. Until then, we just kind of wait. No, that's not the case. We are justified in the past. We will be glorified in the future. But for now, we are to be sanctified. God's will is for us to be sanctified. In salvation, we're not just looking for life after death. We're also looking for life before death, life now, as God intends. But how do you live that life? How do you overcome sin and spiritually grow? And that's, that's what this whole class is aimed to discover. So far, we've seen the big picture of this war against sin. We've explored the right and the wrong battlefields. Last week, we left off uh, by identifying the real source of sin, these desires of the heart. There's there's something broken inside of us. Our desires and affections have been corrupted by the fall. So now there's there's some force inside of us pulling us away from the Lord and his righteousness. That's the real problem. That's the real battlefield. Something has to be done about that. Until you, you figure that out, there's no winning the war. Now today our goal is to keep marching in this quest to discover what God actually tells us to do, wants us to do, to overcome, to s- Grow, uh, overcome the ongoing sin in our lives. We're going to do that this evening by further getting to know our enemy, which just so happens to be inside of us. We need to reestablish the heart problem, talk about the heart solution, and then really crystallizes what changes and what doesn't change at salvation. Now, what changes? What doesn't change at salvation? And especially after salvation, what is the state of our enemy within? Let's see if we can figure out how the principle of sin works inside of us at salvation. And getting to know our enemy, this lesson, it's thankfully the last step before we can finally formulate an actual plan of attack. So let's, let's cover this. No real fancy outline this evening, but just four steps to help you get to know the enemy of sin within. Four areas we need to cover. Four steps to, to know your enemy, Sin. First, get to know the heart problem. We're going to do a quick recap here. Get to know the heart problem. Last week, we ended by identifying the right battlefield in fighting sin as the heart. As is often said, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Just to restate the heart problem, on the surface, it seems like our problem are all these sinful deeds. We, we act wrong. We misbehave in God's definition. We follow Jesus, but we still continue to sin. We violate his law. We act contrary to his will. We think something's got to be done about these sinful deeds. But last week we learned and established, why are we doing these things? Where do these sinful deeds come from? They emerge out of sinful desires. We want the wrong things. God made us to be creatures of desire. We always act according to our strongest desire. But the problem is our desires have been corrupted after the fall, and although they can still be restricted to a degree, nevertheless wicked, sinful desires seem to come out of us often. It's just like Jesus taught, which we referenced Matthew seven, twenty through twenty three, where he said that which proceeds out of the man is that which defiles the man. For from within out of the heart of men proceed. The evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of covening, and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. The scripture speaks of us before salvation as being what you might call totally depraved. That means we're morally corrupt. We're unable to do any good that pleases God. This corruption is total, not in the sense that we are as bad as we could be, but that this corruption extends to every part of our being. Intellect, emotion, will. Like Jeremiah says again, Jeremiah 79, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 depicts the unbeliever before salvation, Ephesians 4.17 tells us, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. How? In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And that, that was us too before Salvation, before salvation, every part of us was infected by sin. and The result was sin-stained thoughts and desires which turn into sinful words and deeds. In short, Ephesians 2 says we were spiritually dead by nature, children of wrath. So that sounds like a pretty big heart problem, an internal problem. What can we do about this? What can you do to change your inner nature? Nothing. We don't have that power. Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In other words, you can't. There's no hope in self. There's only hope in God. If, if we're to be changed and saved, he's going to have to do something for us. He's going to have to act on us to change us. Thankfully, though, by his calling, by his choosing, he does just that. He does something about our lost, dead, depraved hearts and natures. And so we have a second step to know the enemy within. Secondly, get to know the heart solution. You need to get to know the heart solution. The heart solution is something called regeneration. The new birth. Like Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And there are two parts to God's work of Regeneration. It's a cleansing and a creation. A cleansing and a creation. A washing and a renewal. In the act of regeneration, God is first pictured as washing or cleansing the sinner from the defilement of sin. And then secondly, God imparts new spiritual life to the dead soul. Regeneration is akin to a spiritual rebirth or spiritual resurrection, you might say. God takes those who are spiritually dead and he makes them spiritually alive. Ephesians 2, one: we were dead in trespasses and sins, enslaved to Satan, and by nature, children of wrath, but no more. God in his mercy, Ephesians 2, five: even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. If you recall last week, we reflected on the sin problem as exemplified by national Israel. They were a people chosen by God. He entered into a national covenant with them. He gave them his law. And if the power to save people and change people, to sanctify them, was in the law, just a bunch of rules, then Israel would have no problem. They had that. But despite their privileges, their history was one of nonstop sin, unbelief, idolatry. Why? I mean, they had the land, priesthood, temple, kings, the law. What was their real problem? Why were they so disobedient and so unbelieving? God himself identified the problem long ago. He told them. It was their uncircumcised hearts. The law of God and external rights can do nothing to actually change their nature on the inside. That can't make a person right with God. Rules, regulations, physical circumcision, these rights. That doesn't do anything to change you. Rather, the people needed new hearts or natures that they might love God from the inside and obey Him because they wanted to, because they've been made new. That's something God said, even back in the law, that He would do for His people. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God told them, He said, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So that you may live. This is a work of God that He promised to do in mass for His people in the New Covenant. No longer would only a few of His people be born again or have circumcised hearts. Rather, that would be the defining characteristic of all His true people. So you know this New Covenant promise that Jesus touches on when He says you must be born again. Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-six and twenty-seven. God promises them. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And thankfully this new covenant has come in Christ. And now only those who are born again are part of God's people. And salvation justification flow out of this new birth and before the sin problem affected every part of our being but the new birth changes things our eyes were spiritually blind now we can see our ears were deaf now we can hear our minds were darkened now we can understand our will was bound now it's free so in generation we in regeneration we really are made new But above all, though, we had hearts of stone which were dead to God and his ways. Now we have hearts of flesh alive to God. We have Hebrews 10.22. Hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And with these new hearts come new what? Desires or affections. Now, if you've been born again, all of a sudden you come to love what God loves. And hate what God hates. Per the Beatitudes, all of a sudden now, if you're a true child of God, you mourn over your sin and you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Overall, regeneration is just a fundamental change in our heart or inner nature. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Or like Jesus taught, Matthew 7.17-18. Good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. And in salvation, we are transformed in regeneration from the bad tree to the good tree. You now are a good tree. You can't do that yourself, but he makes you a good tree. Your fundamental nature has changed on the inside. And what's the natural result of that? It is fruit, right? Good fruit changed lives. When God brings a person from spiritual death to spiritual life, they're going to start acting like it. The inner transformation that God works will soon start to show itself on the outside. Now, I know we're covering a lot of ground here and there's a lot more to go. But I'd be remiss at this point already if I didn't ask you, have you experienced this change? It's not just a Bible study at this point. Ask yourself, have you been born again? Do you have this new heart for for God? Do you sense these new affections, a love for God, for his word, for his people, for the things of the Lord? Do you show signs of life? Do you bear fruit? These are essential questions, not just a Bible study here, because Christ said, apart from this new birth, you can't enter the kingdom. And so there's always this call to examine your life and your faith. Has this happened to you? If not, how do you become born again? Well, in one sense, you can't do anything. But this is a work of God by the Spirit to raise dead sinners to life. Like Lazarus in the grave, you're, you're just dead. This is something that must be done to you. So what, do we just kind of sit around and hope for the best? Not quite. Jesus teaches us that this new birth is a divine work in John chapter 3. But later in that same chapter, he also says that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 16. We're not privy to the movement of God's spirit. We only need to focus on what God has made us responsible to do. Repent and believe. And you can be sure that if you humble yourself and call upon Jesus in faith, you will be saved. You will have been born again. And that's good news. This is the heart problem solved. We're given new, living, circumcised hearts. Out of which we believe. And then comes our justification. If this has happened to you. You should have a confession of faith. You should experience some newness. You should be different. This is not the end of the matter. Because that's not the end of our experience. Some problem remains. Because while you should experience some newness. If you're here. You've professed faith in Christ. You say you're a Christian. You should experience some newness. But you still experience some oldness you still sin. Things are different because there's a real part of you now that doesn't want to sin. When you're in your right mind, you would say, I don't want to sin ever again. I don't want to do that thing ever again. But other times, it's like you're not even thinking and you're just carried away into the the same sin you just said you don't want to do anymore by some lust or desire. Remember, we, we connected sinful deeds to sinful desires. The new birth has drastically changed us and given us new affections or desires for God. So you should have desires for righteousness if you're a believer. If there are none, examine your salvation uh, big time. But this new birth has not eradicated all of our old desires. And part of us still wants to sin. What is that part? It clearly seems that after salvation, the battle lines have shifted. The nature of our enemy and the fight have changed. In salvation, and that's—I guess—you'd expect that. But if we're going to know our enemy, we need to understand how it fights within us after the new birth. And by way of illustration, after uh, the two atomic bombs were dropped, the Japanese formally surrendered, September second, nineteen forty-five, and World War II was over. But news of the end of the war did not reach. All of the Japanese troops, many of them were stationed on remote islands scattered throughout the Pacific and they were cut off from the outside world. They had no communication with the outside world. So they never learned that the war was over, that Japan surrendered. And being fiercely loyal, they were ready to keep up the fight as long as they lived. And so the war was over, but there are dozens of recorded instances of Japanese troops continuing to fight long after the end of the war. Whoever showed up on their island, they were hostile. And throughout the rest of the 1940s into the 1950s, they found all these holdouts of Japanese troops fighting. The last recognized holdout was a single soldier left on Morotai Island in Indonesia. He did not surrender until December 1974. The war was long over, but some battles raged on. That's, that's kind of like our war against sin now. The war is over. Christ on the cross conquered sin, Satan, and death. It, it's a defeated enemy. The enemy has lost the war. When he died, when he rose again, the war is over. But until Jesus returns to reign and rule, there's still some battles. The fight rages on. The enemy is still going to fight. And even after the new birth, the enemy of sin still is kicking and fighting within us. like I said, being born again, that the nature of that fight has changed. The battle lines have shifted a bit. We need to address that now. We've covered so far the heart problem, the heart solution. We've learned what changes inside of us at salvation. Now we need to ask what does not change at salvation? And for this, we're going to follow scripture's lead and switch metaphors from the heart to the flesh, from the heart To the flesh. That's how scripture speaks. That's how we're going to speak. So third step here in getting to know the enemy of sin within. Get to know the flesh. Thirdly, get to know the flesh. And quickly turn to Galatians 5. We're going to look at a lot of verses here. But see how fast you are in turning your Bibles. Galatians 5, 16 through 17. This is a key verse we're eventually going to get to. But I want to preview it already just to show you. Galatians 5, 16 through 17. Apostle Paul says, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, clearly you can see some dichotomy or struggle is portrayed between the spirit And the flesh. Before we can get into that, we need to get to know this this new concept, the flesh. What is the flesh? This can get very confusing very quickly because this one Greek word, sarx, is used in many different ways. Now, briefly, in a basic sense, the flesh can sometimes just refer to the human body. A body part, your whole body, just like your physical flesh. That's pretty simple. That's easy to identify not that big of a deal. Other times, more generally, the flesh can refer to like just human existence, being alive. Like we're earth bound, our existence is bound to the flesh. Galatians 2.20, Paul speaks of the life I now live in the flesh. He just means life lived here below as a human. Now, there's nothing inherently sinful about the human body or the human, or human existence, the proof of that is Christ's coming in the flesh. Right? Jesus came in the flesh. First John 4.2. The word became flesh. John 1.14. Jesus was then put to death in the flesh to save us. 1 Peter 3.18. He did all this as the perfect man. There's nothing sinful about his flesh or fleshly existence. He was the perfect man. Now the thing is though about our physical bodies and our physical natures They were not created inherently sinful, but they were created inherently weak or frail. Like Jesus said, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Or Isaiah 40, verse 6, all flesh is like grass, and that grass withers easily. There's a type of weakness, not sinfulness or evil, but a type of weakness inherent to humanity. That is just verified by how quickly Adam and Eve fell in the garden. It did not take long. Did not take much temptation for them to fall. They fell pretty quick. And while there's nothing inherently evil or sinful about human flesh or our physical nature, after the fall, this flesh, being so weak, was easily conquered and captured by sin. So now you can certainly say, our flesh is enslaved to sin. Our flesh was captured and enslaved to sin. Our flesh is fallen and corrupt. Our flesh, which speaks of our physical nature, was created good and oriented toward God. But after the fall, it became corrupt and is now oriented away from God toward sin. Now, the thing is, though, God didn't make us one part. He made us two parts. We are one being, one person, for sure. But we have two parts, body and soul. Inner nature, outer nature. Now, at the fall, our outer nature... Or, physical nature became enslaved to sin. That is the flesh. Then, our, our inner nature, our spiritual nature, our hearts, in turn became enslaved to the flesh. And so, we became thoroughly sinful inside and outside. You can turn to Romans 6 to see a few verses. While you're turning, I'm going to read a few more. Ephesians 2 3, which we referenced earlier, says, Before salvation, we too lived formerly in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Titus, chapter three verse three, likewise says, "Before salvation, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures." The Romans six. We'll be in Romans 6 a lot. Romans 6, 6 and 7. It says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, Christ, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. That's what's no longer true of us, but it once was. We, We were enslaved to sin. We'll come back to that. But, The old self, the old man, the flesh, what was captured by the flesh, I should say, and made to sin. Now, again, what happens after salvation? How does this whole uh, dynamic change after salvation? What changes at salvation? Now, first, our physical nature remains unchanged. Our bodies are still fallen and corrupt. We decay. We die. Our physical natures are still oriented to sin. So far, God's redemption has extended to our hearts, but not yet our bodies. Now, to be sure, Christ died to redeem us, body and soul, both. But his work has not yet been applied to our bodies in this stage of redemption. We have been born again on the inside, but we're still waiting for glorification. What is the hallmark of glorification? Future. It is receiving new resurrected bodies, a physical nature, no longer oriented to sin, but reoriented back to God forever. Glorification, nothing happens to the soul. It's already been born again, but the body now is made new. This is Romans eight. You can flip over to Romans eight, verse 23. He expresses our future hope. He says, and not only this, verse 23, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We've already experienced redemption in the inner man, the heart. Our souls, our hearts have been redeemed, born again, made new. That's new birth. That's regeneration, which we already covered. At, at salvation, your old self, Romans 6, 6, your old man was crucified. Your old self was put to death with Christ. And in turn, Romans 6 teaches, you were raised to new life. These are internal realities. You were given a new spirit, a new heart, a new inner nature. So you really are new on the inside. After salvation, you are genuinely new on the inside, but you are still old on the outside. New on the inside, old on the outside. So now we can ask, what's the relationship between the two? Between the flesh and the spirit after salvation. Between our old bodies and our new spirit. Our old physical nature and our new spiritual nature. Well, I'm going to reiterate and try and go slow to be clear. Because like I said, this, this can be a lot. So again, before salvation, our flesh, our physical nature was captured and enslaved to sin. It became a type of sin nature. But that just means it's oriented away from God in thoughts and desires. And likewise, before salvation, our hearts or inner nature was captured by the flesh, enslaved to the flesh. Okay, then we come to saving faith, a point in time we're born again. In that moment, nothing changes in our flesh. The flesh is still unredeemed. It's still oriented away from God. It still desires sin. But our inner nature, our hearts have been made new. And given new desires. Now the kicker though is that our hearts have been freed from the flesh. Our hearts, our spirits, our inner man is no longer enslaved to our flesh. We still got this thing called the flesh. But we are no longer enslaved to it. You have been made new. Your new inner man is no longer enslaved to the flesh. But now enslaved to righteousness. Righteousness. This is Romans 6, 16 through 18. Go back there. Romans 6, verse 16. He says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God. That though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Key phrase there, we're freed from sin. Just like Romans 6 verse 6, we're no longer slaves to sin. Chapter 6 verse 7, we are freed from sin. Now, look, this means we still have the sinful flesh. We're no longer enslaved to it. We don't have to obey it. To use Paul's own terminology, we're no longer in the flesh. That our our new inner man is not in the flesh. But in a sense, the flesh is still in us. It's still a part of us. We're not separated from it. And herein lies the struggle between the old and the new. Now, we're going to keep going to try and make this even more clear. Look at Romans 6, 11, and 12. This is a a key verse to clarify the issue. Romans 6, 11, and 12. He says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. So he says, consider yourselves dead to sin, because that's true. That's now true. Positionally in Christ, you are dead to sin. You're no longer under sin's power. Sin no longer defines your inner nature. You've been made alive to God, born again. You are no longer, Ephesians 2 3, by nature, children of wrath. That's not true of you anymore. You are no longer, Titus 3 3, which we read earlier, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. No longer true. Instead, now, 2 Peter 1.4, it says, you have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That does not mean we are deified. That's, that's heresy. It, it simply means that the new nature planted within us at the new birth is now oriented to God. It is alive to God. It is pointed toward him. And has desires for righteousness. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, because that's true. That's, that's who you are now. But since we still retain this thing called the flesh, verse 12, therefore, and this is a huge therefore, verse 12, therefore, he says, do not let sin reign. Reign where? in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Clearly the sin issue is not over because we were dead to sin and alive to God. Something's still going on here. Verse 12 tells us many things. Though we are new, we're clearly not free from sin entirely. We are free from its penalty and justification, but we're clearly not free from sin's presence. Some presence of sin is still in us. It remains where? In our flesh. But we're no longer enslaved to it. We're freed from its power. We can resist it. We don't have to let it reign. Before we were slaves to it, we had no choice. Now you can resist it. These desires of the flesh, they can still overcome you, but they don't have to. With a new, freed, Holy Spirit-empowered spirit, You can rebel against your flesh. Now, where does this rebellion take place? He says in verse 12, in the mortal body. That there's something about our bodies or physical natures that are still sin-cursed and oriented towards sin. And so as a result, we have sinful propensities in our bodies. Our flesh produces sinful lusts. But verse 12, we no longer have to obey them. We can crucify them. Now, quick timeout. With all this discussion on the flesh, we need a, a word of clarification or caution. Just so you know, we're not using this concept of flesh synonymously with our bodies. We want to be clear and careful here because that's a serious error many have fallen into throughout church history. And This gets confusing because this word flesh can be used in many different ways, sometimes of our physical bodies. But when it's used in a context of salvation or sanctification, the flesh is never reduced to just our physical bodies. This thing called the flesh certainly relates to our bodies, affects our bodies, but is not synonymous with just our physical bodies. The Bible does not teach that human bodies are inherently sinful or evil. They're not. God made them. He declared them good. They're good enough for Christ to dwell in. Right? Christ came in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16. Of course, virgin birth unstained by original sin, but he came in real human flesh. Now, our bodies are still sin-cursed and unredeemed until the resurrection, but they can still be used to glorify God when given over to his purposes. Don't you know? 1 Corinthians 6.15 says, Do you not know? Your bodies are members of Christ. Then he says, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Don't you know, he says, your body's now in Christ. They're members of Christ. They're temples of the Holy Spirit. It's now God wants you to use them, though Fallen and decaying, he still wants to you to use them as instruments for his glory, and you can't do that. Now you know why this point of clarification matters so much. Because some people, especially in early church history, they deviated from this clear teaching and taught that our physical bodies were themselves evil. In fact, they identified the sin problem with our physical bodies. They took the flesh to simply mean our body. That's not the case, but that's what they taught. And look, as a result, they got the enemy wrong. Right? Here we are, we're trying to get to know the enemy. And they identified the enemy in the fight against sin as, what? as the body. And look, you get the enemy wrong, you're going to get the battle wrong. You're going to get battle tactics wrong. They believed that to fight sin, you had to fight the flesh. And for them, that meant the literal body. And so therefore, how did they fight sin? By mutilating the body, by starving the body by depriving the body, by physically whipping the body, thinking that's how you rein in sin. They thought that by mortifying the physical flesh, they would overcome sin. But that is wrong. It didn't work. It doesn't work. You can't reduce this concept of the sinful flesh to our physical bodies. That's a mistake. Again, I know this whole discussion gets real confusing real quick, but as you follow Paul's language in Passages like Romans 6 through 8 and Galatians 5. It's clear he means something else by the flesh. He's using it as a technical term for something else. It is somehow related to our bodies, but it is not synonymous with our bodies. And the best way I've understood this thing called the flesh in my own studies is that it's more akin to our physical natures than our physical bodies. Our physical nature was weak became enslaved to sin, and that won't change until the resurrection. I know some are are reluctant to say that we have two natures as believers. And in one sense, I agree. In our hearts, we have one nature, right? The old man is really gone. The new man has come. That we're, We're truly born again with new hearts, and there's only one of us on the inside. We have a new nature, one new inner man. That's it. But I haven't heard a better way to understand the flesh than, than an outer nature, a physical nature. The flesh is not our bodies, but it's certainly in our bodies. Our bodies can be used for good. The flesh cannot. I don't know. Maybe it's just still good to use the same old vague term that the flesh is our unredeemed humanness. But I never found that helpful. Like, what, what does that mean? Our unredeemed humanness. But I'll at least argue, uh, at least as far as my understanding goes at this point, that the sinful flesh Paul describes pertains to our sin-cursed physical natures, which are still oriented away from God. Our spiritual nature is new and born again and alive and oriented to God. But we have a physical nature. We're two parts. It affects our bodies, though our bodies are not sinful. Now, either way, though, we can all uh, come away with, with this. That the product of this flesh is what? You know, back to Romans 6.12. It is the lusts of the flesh. Whatever this flesh is, wherever it lives, it, it's giving us one thing, the lusts of the flesh. We're no longer enslaved to these lusts, but they're still there. They don't go away. That's why we must be told not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies so that we obey its lusts. Before salvation, we we didn't have a choice. Now we we have to be told that we, that can happen, but it also can't happen. Our flesh is pumping out these sinful lusts or desires. And now we must not let them reign. We must do something about them. We must fight them. Now we're getting close here. We're getting to know the true enemy in our fight against sin. And we've learned now it's it's in the flesh we have been made new in heart, but we still have the sinful flesh it's pumping out sinful desires, yet we're no longer enslaved to them. This is where we must resist, and so again, in salvation, the battle line kind of shifts. We learn the battlefield is the heart, but really at new birth, the heart is conquered by the lord it's that the inner heart is taken over it's now God's territory. But the battle's not over. The lines have shifted now more to what Paul calls the flesh, our, our outer man. This is where we must resist. This is where the real fight is at. And look, that's good news. We're, we're trying to find out where to fight and, and what we're fighting. And it's the flesh. More specifically, the flesh with its lusts. So as a final step, I want us to take this evening in getting this last bit of crucial understanding. We need to get to know what these lusts of the flesh are all about. So, step four now. Last step to get to know the enemy within. You need to get to know the lusts of the flesh. Get to know the lusts of the flesh. So, We've asserted that our sinful deeds come out of our sinful desires. That we have a heart problem. But thankfully, that heart problem is solved by the Lord in Regeneration but the sinful flesh remains and it's still responsible for pumping out sinful desires or lusts. We can tease again that the critical verse Galatians 5, 16 tells us walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh. You still have them. You don't have to carry them out. When you do, they turn into deeds of the flesh later in Galatians 5. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. They come from these desires. You don't have to do them, though. But our last goal this evening right now is just to better understand what are these desires or lusts of the flesh all about? Well, the word for desire or lust in Greek is epithumia. Normally, when you hear the word lust, you think sexual lust. In English, that's how the word is almost always used, but not so in Greek. It certainly can include sexual lust, but it really just means strong desire. Good or bad, any strong desire is a lust. And there are many examples where this lust, epithemia, is spoken of in a good way. For example, Paul had a strong desire to visit a certain region. That's not a bad desire. That's a good lust, so to speak. That being said, Still, most of the time, this lust is spoken of in a negative way. And then it refers to an evil desire. You can have good desires. You can have evil desires. So the question is, what makes our lusts or desires evil? What turns them evil? Not all of our lusts or desires that we have are bad. Some are outright evil, but others are good. For example, your desire for sleep, your desire For food, there's nothing wrong with those. Those are good, normal human desires. But Even those desires can turn evil. How? What's the dividing line? It's when you want these things more than you want to honor and obey God. And you can tell you've crossed that line when you act to satisfy your desires, even though they're going to take you outside the boundaries of God's revealed will. And that's the very definition of sin. God made us with all sorts of desires and originally they were all good. They're all good. He gave us many righteous outlets for these desires. God is a source of every good gift. He made us to be fully satisfied in him and his good creation. God is good. And then he gave us good boundaries for these good desires. He tells us just, just live inside of these boundaries And everything will be good. Enjoy every good gift. Satisfy your every desire. If you're inside the revealed will of God, you are glorifying God in all that you do. That's how he designed it. God's laws are like a fence around a a kid's playground next to a busy street. That fence is not there so that the kids can't have fun. It's, It's there that they are protected from harm. It's truly for their own good. But you see, after the fall, the flesh exists in rebellion against God. It has become inherently selfish, dethroning God, enthroning self. And so the flesh wants just one thing, just to go outside the fence, to go outside God's boundaries. The flesh is enslaved to the lie that satisfaction for all these desires is only found outside of God's ways. And so the flesh perverts or warps all our good desires and turns them sinful. When you think about it, just about every sin comes from a good desire that has gone wrong, a good desire that has turned evil by taking it outside of God's bounds. I'll repeat what I uh, previewed last week. This is how the desire for comfort turns into laziness, the desire for food turns into gluttony, the desire for provision turns into greed. The desire for sexual intimacy turns into adultery. The desire for pleasure turns into drunkenness. The desire for control turns into anger. The desire for possessions turns into covetousness. The desire for worship turns into idolatry. The list goes on. These now are the lusts of the flesh. They represent the desire for satisfaction or fulfillment outside of God's bounds our flesh is constantly trying to drag us outside the fence, outside God's boundaries with these lusts. And when you give in to them, like I said, what do you get? You get the deeds of the flesh, a.k.a. just sin, sinful deeds, sinful fruit. The desires of the flesh produce the deeds of the flesh. But we know now the real enemy is not just the deeds of the flesh, the things we do. It's a problem, but you got to trace it back. Where are they coming from? The lusts of the flesh. We have to do something about that. Now, our time is nearly up, but we're going to go to one last passage that pops the hood on us for how these lusts work inside of us. It's James chapter 1. So, let's go over. James chapter 1. It's a quick look at verses 13 through 15. James 1, 13 through 15. He starts off in verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. He starts off by establishing that that God is not the source of our temptation. He tests, but never tempts or entices his people to sin. Okay then, so... Where does temptation or enticement to sin come from? It doesn't come from God. Where does this enticement to sin come from? Well, he answers in verse 14. Your own lusts. Verse 14. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Epithumia. This would have been the perfect occasion for James to blame it all on the devil right? All sin, all your temptation, it's the devil. The devil made me do it. Now, don't get me wrong. The devil can be a source of temptation. That's true. But he's highlighting the, the lion's share of our uh, uh, temptation problem. It's, it's your own epithemia, It's your own lusts. And to explain how lust works, hidden in the Greek of verse 14 is a fishing metaphor. A fish is enticed by a piece of bait floating in the water, just by its nature. It's attracted to it. It desires it. It wants to eat it. And if that desire is strong enough, it's, it's going to go for it. But that's when the fish finds that he was deceived. There's, there's a hook hidden in this bait, but it's too late. He's then carried away and hooked or reeled in. And temptation begins inside of us when our inner lusts, or desires are awakened by some some object. The verbs here are all in the passive, indicating that these lusts are pictured as just taking over, carrying us away from doing what is right. Our flesh within us has the power to control us. That's why we must not let it rain, right? But it has power to affect us, influence us, control us, to lead us down the path of temptation. And if you're a believer, who cannot attest to the experience that, that when you sin, it feels like you're not in the driver's seat. It feels like someone else is taking control. Like someone, something is making you do this. You don't want to do in a sense. Indeed, when you sin, you are being controlled by the flesh, not the spirit. You're walking by the flesh. And when that happens, as often as it happens, what's the result? Verse 15. He says, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, James quickly switches to a childbirth metaphor to explain the result of lust. Note the combination. Having these desires in our heart, that's what produces the temptation, the enticement to sin. But don't be mistaken. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is the opportunity to sin. Only when these desires are met with a willingness to, to act on them, do we have sin. But if these lusts are strong enough, if they're not put down, if they're not defeated by something else, well, you're going to take the bait. And then what happens? Sin happens. The next step is disobedience. You go outside of God's boundaries. We just call that sin. And then a sin, of course, gives birth to death, spiritual death. Now, thankfully, we've been rescued from the death part, right? We've been forgiven, born again. We've overcome that spiritual death consequence. There's no condemnation. For us in Christ. But we've learned. We still have this thing called the flesh. A type of sin nature. Sin orientation. Remains in us somewhere. Part of us somewhere. and So we still have these sinful lusts. And they, they want us to go outside the boundary. Outside the fence. Let's go after that, that bait over there. But for the believer. The big difference now. Is there should be competition. With these lusts. It should be the case. If you're alive. And that's, that's the big takeaway from this study. Your, your old flesh remains as to your sinful desires. But now you should have a new heart, a new spirit. You should have new desires, hungering and thirsting for righteousness if you've come to Christ. And so we find then that there are now two competing sets of desires within us. They want different things. That of the flesh, that of the spirit. And that right there is the battle. That, that's the final battle line drawn. I guess I lied. One last verse, Galatians 5.17. It's still a preview, but go, we'll finish here. We have to, though, because I want you to see it for yourself. Galatians 5.17, which we will resume with next time, of course. We can finally address the, the battle. Galatians 5.17. He reminds us, he says, the flesh sets its desire, epithumia, lusts, against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things that you please. The righteousness we want to do. We've got an opponent. The lust of our flesh. But this is it. We have arrived. We now know our enemy. It's the flesh with its lusts. We know where to fight. It's not really at the level of deeds. It's the level of desires. You've got to fight and win at the level of desires. And now we can formulate a battle plan to learn how to fight. Now you can actually hop in the trenches, confident that we're in the right place. We've got these old desires for sin still within us. We do have new desires for righteousness. Okay, how do we do this? How do we diminish these old desires? that we can beat them down. How do we enhance these new desires? It's something we must do. We will learn. How do we do that? There is some good news that a champion has been given to us to help us fight, to empower us in this fight, because it is not our work alone by any means. One whom we've not really discussed yet, but now finally can, it is the Holy Spirit. Because the verse before, Galatians 5, 16, that key verse, it's starting to crystallize, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That's it. That's how to win the war against sin. All you have to do is walk by the spirit. That's all you have to do. What does that mean? How do you do that? Well, look at the time. Uh, all I can say is don't miss next week. And uh, you'll find out. And let us pray. Our God, we, we give you thanks for your word and its clarity. You, you made us, Lord, you know our frame. You know, you know we are dust. You know we are frail and weak. That you do care for us. You love us. You made us in your image. You made us good. And being good, you seek to redeem us, to bring us to yourself, body and soul. We long for that day when we will be with you resurrected to behold your glory in the eternal kingdom we look forward to that in the meantime we thank you in your word seeing that you know us so well you've shown us how we tick how we work even how we break how we sin your word is true you know man better than the greatest anthropologist you you've made us you know our intent uh, internal frame so we thank you for for popping the hood on on what's going on inside of us, even after salvation, that we might see and understand the battle within. Your word is clear. It's written to equip us that we might be sanctified, for that is your will for us now. We praise you for our justification. We long for our glorification, but may we be uh, driven to sanctification, a a calling you've called us with, a work you've given us to do. We we need to learn more, but already a work in us by the spirit, to grow, to overcome the lust of the flesh. We know they're there, we, we feel them, we, we see them. And sometimes we do walk by the flesh. We sin. We thank you that you're an ever-forgiving God, cleansing us eternally in Christ. We need not fear, but yet now that we're new, we want to pursue righteousness. We, we hate sin, we, we love you, we love your ways. We don't want to persist in sin any longer. So give us the hope, give us equipping to fight, to overcome, to be like our Savior. Until next time, keep us in your will. In Christ's name we pray, amen.